0: Hello and welcome to Gamma Project. My name is Dean Statman, I'll be your host, and this is Episode 9. This episode is brought to you by Nourish. Nourish delivers personalized nutrition to your door with protein, vitamins, and minerals to support your individual needs. When you go to iFitNourish.com, you'll fill out a quick questionnaire with some basic information, things like gender, age, height, and weight, before providing insights into your lifestyle, like your typical energy levels, daily sun exposure, whether or not you're a smoker, how often you exercise, the kinds of exercise you do, and, of course, your goals. In the dietary section, you'll input how much fruit and vegetables you get through your day, any dietary preferences, like if you prefer vegan or a vegetarian mix, food allergies, how often you plan to drink the shakes, and whether you intend to use them as a meal replacement or supplements. You can also pick your favorite flavor. Whether you're looking to build muscle, lose weight, increase your endurance, improve energy levels or athletic performance, or even just maintain, iFit Nourish was created to arm you with the nutrition that you need to go after your goals while also maintaining a solid daily nutritional foundation. When I went to ifitnourish.com to try it out for myself, the questionnaire took less than a minute to fill out. And when the system presented its recommendation, I was able to look through the supplement facts before completing my order. Your first personalized order is free. Just pay $5 shipping, and you'll also get a free shaker bottle. I like to eat vegan as often as I possibly can, so I got two weeks worth of a daily protein shake made from plant-based ingredients. And when you're ready to re-up, use discount code JUST4U, that's J-U-S-T, number four, letter U, at checkout to take another 20% of any personalized iFit Nourish mix. Try it for yourself today at ifitnourish.com. That's i f i t n o u r i s h.com. What's up everyone and welcome to another episode of Gamma Project. It's the season finale, can you guys believe it? I think the break between this episode and the one before it was longer than the entire season was supposed to take, but that's on me. Um, The truth is, the last 12 months have been unlike any other in my life, and I mean that in the best way possible. In the time since the first episode of Gamma Project aired in January, I left my full-time job, moved to Brooklyn, fell in love, uh started my own PR agency, Got a dog and signed over a dozen clients in the first 10 months of business, which may or may not have had something to do with buying the dog, I'm not sure. But it has been a roller coaster ride and one of the most eye-opening and transformative experiences of my life. And admittedly, I haven't spent as much time working on the podcast as I would have liked. Uh, this is a passion project and I didn't want to rush an edit just to get an episode out. But I did keep recording. And at this point, it's safe to say that I already have enough interviews banked to start putting together a certifiably killer season two. So get ready for new episodes to start hitting soon, and no, it won't take six months this time. But I've made you wait long enough for this episode, so let's get straight to what you came here for. Today's guest is a true heavyweight, the man behind one of the most exciting companies in a booming multi-billion dollar industry. George Foreman III is a professional boxer fitness instructor, author, entrepreneur, and the founder of Everybody Fights, a Boston-based luxury boxing gym with locations around the country. And if you didn't catch it in the name, he's also the son of legendary two-time world heavyweight champion, Big George Foreman Sr. Looking at George, the son of an international boxing legend, it could be easy to assume that things were handed to him. But the real story is so much better. The gym Everybody Fights didn't get its name from the notion that everyone should box, although that certainly wouldn't hurt business. Instead, it's about the fact that everybody fights. We all do, every day, for the things we want and need. Everybody Fights was not funded by the George Foreman grill. In fact, George lived on his business partner's couch for 14 months during the time it took to get the business off the ground. And together, they took 91 meetings to secure funding to open the gym. As a pro boxer with a 16-0 record that's undefeated, George knows what it means to be a fighter. And in his first book, The Fighting Spirit, he shares the strategies and mental tactics that give him strength, motivation, and focus. So on the eve of Everybody Fights, opening its sixth location, a 12,000 square foot coliseum of a gym in Philadelphia, the culmination and physical embodiment of everything George has learned over the past five years since founding Everybody Fights, and prior as a professional boxer, I thought it would be the perfect time to air this tremendous interview. The episode is also significant to me on a personal level. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in early March, the same month I started my business, and it had been scheduled weeks before that, while I was still working at Men's Health. I remember after the interview, telling George about my idea for the company, a public relations agency focusing exclusively on health, fitness, and wellness clients Created from the ground up by an editor with over a decade of editorial experience in the space. At the time, I didn't realize I was unwittingly making my first client pitch. Two months later, Everybody Fights became the fourth client to join Stat Media PR, and we've been working together ever since. While we had collaborated briefly in the past, this interview was the first time I got to sit down with George and really dig into all the questions I had for him. From his early days as a pro boxer and all it took to get to that point, including training under his father, to running a successful, rapidly expanding business with the help of a few tactics learned in the boxing ring. In this interview, we talk about how to keep things in perspective and what it really takes to create your own legacy. We also discuss how to approach decisions from a position of power rather than fear, and much, much more. It's an episode worthy of a season finale if ever there was one. So I'll leave it there, and without further ado, here is my interview with George Foreman III. George, welcome to the show. What's up, man? How you doing? <laughs> pretty good, pretty good. Thanks for taking the time. Glad to be with you. I don't know if it's still going on, but when we got here, there was this giant, um,
1: not a parade, it was like a protest going yeah. on outside the window. I mean, tens of thousands of people. Look like. It. Yeah, it was intense, man. I was just trying to get out of the way, man. I, it was really intense, but, you know, they, they, they have their beliefs, so they got to stand up, right? Luckily, we were hooked us up with a nice...
0: Soundproof-ish <laughs> room, <laughs> there's some curtains around, yeah, probably as good loud. as you can get towards the center of the building, uh, props, really? they hooked it up. Uh, so dude, you um, managed to take a couple minutes out of your day from Everybody Fights, thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah, happy to, man, happy
0: to. Tell me about EBF right now, I mean, you guys have you opened in New York City a little while ago, you have one of, you know, decidedly the hottest boxing gyms in the city. Thank you. And <laughs> But you're not alone. The Boxing space is so crowded right now in group fitness. What,
1: what are some things you guys are doing to stand out? Uh, you know, I think the most important thing we do to, to stand out to answer your question is just don't do anything different. Don't change who we are. Um, you know, when we started off, we started off with the goal of creating the ultimate fitness facility for a professional boxer. And so a professional boxer could walk in and say, you know what, there's nothing missing. Everything I need to do, I can get it done here, and I don't have to leave these doors. And that came out of me being a pro fighter, exercising part outside for my functional stuff, indoors at Lifetime Fitness, primarily for the showers and the steam rooms and the treadmills. And um, then we had our own gym, 60,000-square-foot facility with a lot going on, but I had to do all these things to pull it under one roof. I'd even go to Athletic Republic because – um they, uh, it's a performance facility, The more like a football concept, football combine type, con- type concept. Use their, like treadmills with a high incline. All that to, to to accomplish my training camp. So I wanted a place where I could do it all under one roof. And I was still fighting at the time, so selfishly sneaky. I was like, man, if I could make a few bucks and still have a place where I could train, I could just live here, you know? Make a living, train for my fights, et cetera. And um, the only reason... We actually, when we started, we just had um, yoga was our only class. That was it. Hmm. And the only reason we started um, teaching other classes, we had a yoga classroom. I think we had cycling classes in there as well. We did that because no one was using the programmed, curated boxing spaces at all. Um, the way we laid it out was um, five people per station, 12 stations, 12-round 12 workout, and, and we had a bell that just went on at all times, and you just come in and use the gym, and just like any other boxing gym, it's not a new concept, you know? Wait, it was, it was just yoga? No, well, no, we had a circuit training room, if you will, but it had okay. boxing included. It was for boxing training. We had a bags room with bags. Okay. That was it. Cool. And then we had a in- fully enclosed classroom with yoga, and we had cycling in there. Okay, got it. And so was this, it was called Everybody Fights at this point? Uh, no, it was called The Club by George Foreman third. Oh, okay, cool. And then upstairs, we this had... Is in this is in Boston? Yep. Yeah. Upstairs, we had uh, about 30 pieces of cardio equipment. And free weights, and we had sauna, steam room, showers. we had a organic juice bar, and that was the whole facility, and one classroom. So we laid out the gym, so it's painfully obvious when you come in, like do this for a couple rounds, do that, you could just make up your own workout. No one used it. So that was the place where we had two rings and the stations around there. But people would go in that classroom all the time, but no one would use this 3, 3,500 3, square- foot circuit.) So we started teaching classes to teach the programming of the week. At each station, I actually had something that told you what to do and what would do it. And the class, we would just teach it, run one class in the morning, one class in the evening. That was the only time people came to the facility. So we were like, okay, well, we'll teach the same workout, but we'll just teach it in a class format. And I remember my uh, business partner AJ um, was like, I have this vision, you're going to be on the stage, and you're going to be teaching people, and you're going to have a microphone, and I'm preparing for my next fight. I'm like, you're crazy. And I probably didn't say it in those terms. You how, know? how long ago is this? This is 2000, 2000 like 2013-ish, um, and into right after we opened, we opened January 2014. Everybody fights. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a that was the original concept, the club, which not then became everybody fights. <clears throat> so I was like, you're crazy, but people were coming, and we we're like, yo, we're making money. So we kept doing that, and I was like, all right, I'll teach a class, I taught a class. Then we had the bags area, right, not being utilized, 50 bags, and the only reason I have 50 bags is because I said no one's ever gonna come into my gym and have to wait on a bag, because that was a problem in, like traditional boxing gyms, no one used them. AJ started running classes back there and he wasn't a group fitness instructor nor was he a boxer Hmm. and he used to hang around a boxing gym when he was young and taught a class just off the hip and uh, we had some like horrible speakers and people loved it so we were like all right let's build a class series and so we had the circuit room booming bags room yoga room an open gym upstairs and we won best gym in Boston, best luxury gym in Boston up against like Equinox, Barry's, et cetera. Wow. Um, Just doing that, just responding to what people are asking for and trying to get people to utilize the space because we didn't want to go broke. And so then we looked upstairs, we had these life fitness treadmills. And at the time in the entire city, we had the nicest treadmills. And I made sure of it because I needed to break even. So I was like, if you don't love boxing, we're a convenient open gym. you'll pay for that, you know? Mm-hmm. You, you're willing to pay for that and take a chance on the boxing. And so no one was using the treadmills anymore. We had, they, you could program workouts. They had like 17-inch screens, Wi-Fi, and I had road work classes on the treadmills. No one would use them. So we brought the treadmills downstairs, took the free weights from downstairs, put them upstairs, along with the rest of the weights, and started teaching a class called roadwork. So in boxing, typically road work is just bodyweight exercises, shadow boxing and running. Um, so we added... Um, Running, cycling, and rowing. The only reason boxers cycle was to protect the knees from all the running. Hmm. And then the rowing is something that is, was lost around the 30s or 40s. Um, but rowing was something that Joe Louis did, Ray Robinson did, to recover from all the push of punching. Okay. To pull. To right? balance it out. To balance it out. They would usually do it after training while they're training with fish. So, training with fish? The trainer would fish. Their trainer would fish, catch fish while they're actually rowing an actual boat um and that's in boxing culture always was digging holes was a part a way to 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 work the muscles as well so we got a roadwork classroom circuit training bags and then we have this yoga room right and what was happening was we were having a demand for all the other classes and people still love the yoga so what we did was we combined the yoga room with the bags room 60 person bag room and we started only teaching yoga on sundays to make it a group thing. And Sundays became like our recovery day because we didn't want to lose that. That was very much part of who we were. Um, And that's how we came up with what Everybody Fights is, Um, just organically. That's how it all started. Um, So when I say, how do we differentiate ourselves? We keep going back to what is the customer asking for? What do we love to do? How do we create spaces that we like to be in and just don't sacrifice that, even if we make a little less money? So I think one thing that stands out to me
0: uh, hearing all that is that it sounds like everything comes from, uh, everything's there for a reason. It comes from like, you know, your training or a fighter's training. It's not, you know, a frill for the sake of being there. It's like the rowing is, you know, to balance out punching, et cetera. Uh, that's, I think that's something that's that's unique about what you guys do. Obviously, you're drawing a lot of experience from your own training as a fighter. Tell me what that was like because, you know, there are a lot of boxers out there, but there are not a lot of people whose trainer is... George Foreman, like big George. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what was that like, you know, when you started? And we'll talk about how you got into boxing. Okay. But uh, do you know what? Why do we start there? You yeah. were reluctant
1: in the beginning. You didn't get into boxing for a while. Yeah, I think this is how I got into boxing. And, and you know, a lot of people wonder why I'm in the fitness industry. I, um, January 19, 1983, um, I was born. And the same year, my dad opened the George Foreman Youth and Community Center. And that was just a fancy name for a gym. And, you know, he's grown it over years. I did everything in that gym. Opened the gates, sweeped the floors, wrapped his hands, um, counted his rounds, stretched him, hung out while, like, the guys from the 80s, when Arnold Schwarzenegger was the thing, pumped weight. And I learned how to pump and watched my dad pump. And then he (laughs) went back to boxing. And that became kind of the focus uh, of the gym, or at least a portion of it. Um, it was a nonprofit. We were giving memberships out at your age and dollars per year. So if you're like 50, you pay 50 <laughs> bucks. If you're 18, you pay $18 and then, uh, over 60, you pay $40 a year. Right. And that was like the planet fitness before there was that. Cause we just needed to serve the, the community and we didn't make any money. Um, but we kept the lights on. And so that's all I know is living in a gym. I don't know life without being in the gym four or five days a week as a owner or the owner's son or an operator. Right. My dad um, went broke, subsidizing the gym, and he went back to boxing so he didn't have to close it down. And that was the connection between, like, boxing and, like, owning gyms That's, mm-hmm. like, that, that started in the family. Um, so anyway, he went on to do what he did. I always worked for my dad. So, like, imagine your dad was a, you know, in medicine. Like, you may not, have, you may not be a surgeon, but you know a little bit of, about medicine, mm-hmm. especially if you worked for him to assist him. I never actually did it myself, ever. It was drive behind him. When he was running, um, whatever needed to be done, I had a job in training camp. Then I had a job when he was in consumer products um, up, up until being his manager one day. And while I was being his manager, I was also helping raise money for the gym, um, hiring people. Um, and then I was 27, no, no, I was like 25 years old, and I'd been on the road with him making great money, which was great. Graduated from Rice University um, with a degree in business and kinesiology. And I gained 300 pounds. I was 300 pounds. Oh, I was like, good gracious. And um, it's about something about living in the South. When I was at Pepperdine, I was 200. Couldn't go, get above 200. I moved to went to Rice. I couldn't stay below 270. It's really fast. And I just wanted to lose weight, and I needed something to motivate me. And I got all my brothers on a conference call, and they teased me. I was not the athlete in the family. I was, like, the worst. I could get on varsity, but I couldn't get on the field. <laughs> and so um, they're like... I was like, if I have one amateur fight, will you guys stop teasing me? And, you know, we watched like a basketball game, and I said, that was a great dunk. They'd be like, how do you know? Um, and they were like, yo, yeah, have an amateur fight. We'll come to it. Cool. So I started training, and that's a, that was just the motivation I needed to lose weight. I trained for a year all by myself and found, found a trainer to essentially just watch me and carry my back. <laughs> and uh, that's all I did, but he was a great motivator. And um, how, how did you know what to do? Just I watched it all my life, you know, Yeah. and, you know, learned how to twist my hips, and I understood the importance of a jab. Like, And all these years, remember, like, although I didn't do it, all we did was talk boxing. Mm-hmm. That's all we did, and I watched it. Like, like, my dad would hide me. He would hide what he would do, what his strategy was for big fights. He would hide that from his training camp, but someone had to go with him. He didn't mm-hmm. like training by himself. And so he'd come wake me up at, like, you know, he's training for the heavyweight championship of the world 1994. He'd wake me up at midnight. And be like Mom, come on let's go and we go into the gym inside the home and we sit there for 12 rounds and i'd hear boom 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 slap pow boom 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 slap pow and his his strategy in that fight he was fighting michael moore who's the champ was hard jab hard jab hard jab touch no hard jab because the guy's head would be too far out of the way after you got hit with it mm-hmm right hand right down the center. And for the life of him, he could not figure out how to take the steam off his jab. It just didn't fit his mentality. But he had to train himself to do that as an old man. He never did it in sparring the entire camp because he didn't (laughs) want anyone to know his strategy. He didn't trust anybody. But I have this ingrained in my brain. And so take that times 20 years, you know, being at your dad's hip. So I knew enough, I guess, in hindsight, because I see how hard it is for other people to learn it. I tell my dad, look, I'm going to fight – and he's like, no, 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 no! My, my manager go out there and get it, get beat up, and he had, <laughs> he hadn't even seen me train, never, and refused to be a part of it. And so he said, let me train you. In six weeks, you'll have your fight. We'll pre-match you, and I'll call the gyms and make sure you're fighting someone who seriously has your same amount of experience. No one in Houston would fight George Foreman's kid. Big surprise, because we're from Houston. Like some of these, the trainers knew my dad in the streets too. You know, not right. just in boxing. And so that became an issue. And then finally, he said, look, just have a professional fight. At least the guy's scared. He'll show up for his paycheck. So I said, okay. Six weeks turned into a full year of him training me. So I'm almost two and a half years of training at that point. And we had my first fight in 2009. It was supposed to be a one-time thing. I'm still managing my dad at the time, traveling 2,000 miles a week sometimes. And right after the fight, he was like, all right. And I said something to him about shooting an infomercial. Um. With Kevin Harrington, actually, like one of the original Shark Tanks, that's who it was. And he was like, "Don't worry about that. Go get ready for your next fight." And that, in itself, was the whole conversation of me becoming a professional fighter for real. Hmm. We didn't actually wow. talk about it. He was like, "Yeah, you, we're gonna fight next month." I was like, "All right." I was like, "Word." <laughs> so, um, man, cut
0: to I fought an, uh, eight six weeks later. What did that feel like in that moment? I mean, all of a sudden, you're like the direction of my. Life has just changed. Like, now it is all about boxing. Like everything. You know,
1: my, my dad almost killed me. Um, but he told you to get ready for the fight. Y- yeah, no, I said he almost killed me during training. Oh. Fight. <laughs> 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 like, I, I literally used to think, like, the, the training methods he would use, I thought he was going to kill me. And I was like, maybe he doesn't even like me. Can you think of an example? I'm sure you can. Yeah. Um, one time I was, um, he had this um, ATV. He had this ATV. It was, it's like you, they call it a mule, Kawasaki mule. So it's like really heavy duty. It's four-wheel drive, whatever, two people can sit in it. It's um it's like a work vehicle. And he attached me to a harness, and we have this horse track, a massive horse track. He, he trains standard standardbred horses, race horses. And he's like, Come on, let's get out there. And it was muddy. And so, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm dragging, he used to drag a Jeep on the street. He put me in the mud. I'm dragging. I can't get the thing moving. I can't get the thing moving. So finally, I get it to budge, which is impossible. Mm-hmm. And it budged, it budged, and then it stopped. And I was like, I look back, and he looks at me, and I said, I don't care. And I put my head right down into, like, literally flat on the ground and started crawling. And he goes, stop, stop. I was like, what? <laughs> I just got it going. And he's like, that's it. I just wanted to see that. Were you willing to do that? Oh, well. Wow. Were you willing to put your, your nose in the mud? Huh. Then he takes me on the road, hooks me up to a jeep, makes me pull it for a mile, and a mile, a, yeah, up a slight incline, very slight, just enough to so you feel the full burn of How the it. How were you pulling? Did you have like some kind of harness on, yeah. or like you remember the old strongman? Oh yeah, 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 um, pulling he, like a Boeing. Yeah, <laughs> except it was just a jeep with two people in it. Just a jeep with <laughs> two people in it. <laughs> Not that strong. And made me pull that for a mile. Um, And so we would do things like this. He, before he even agreed, firmly agreed to train me, he said, you have to run 10 miles. So we've been traveling. Long story short, he said, did you run your 10 miles? No. I've been like sitting on a recumbent bike at the Four Seasons. And, you know, on the road, he said, let's go. So we drive home, go to Famous Footwear. He comes out, goes in by himself, comes out and says, I got you a pair of boots. And just throws them on. You can't just fit boots like that. You know what I mean? Like. And they were size 13, I'm a size 14. I strapped him on, and he's like, we're gonna run today. We get out, in that same mule, this is before I actually had to pull it, and he's like, let's go. And I literally, I probably hadn't ran more than two miles at that point at any given time. I ran 10 miles straight, nonstop, slight jog, sometime running, but never walking, with him behind me. And I still have the scar on my foot right now, I could show you, from 2008. What, what happened to get, a, to get a scar? What's that? How did the scar happen? Because I bled so much. Oh. Like I was bleeding so much in the boots. Oh, from the boots? Oh, damn. Yeah. Because oh, it went past blistering, past scarring, and then it like became a – like I permanently damaged my feet from that. Yeah. Um, But I did it, oh. you know? And so he was like, okay, I'll train you. Then came dragging the thing through the mud. Then came chopping wood in 100-degree weather. Then came taking a wheelbarrow full of dirt up and down hills, um, then came chopping an entire tree down with a hatchet. It's a baby axe. <laughs> 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 then came digging holes so big I could put a jeep in it. Then filling filling it back up. Oh man! And the the culmination of killing me culminated with we were running. and He had a light heavy. I was never fast, but I had endurance. And he had this uh, light heavyweight that was in tra- heavyweight actually that was in training camp with me. But he was a small heavyweight. And he took us on a long run. And I put on maybe too much stuff that day. To, to it was cold and after about seven miles in he's like don't let that, that kid beat you don't let him beat you and he was just lighter you know mm-hmm. so finally i was like i don't have anything left and i just started to, i took off beat him at the last second and literally collapsed passed out the only reason i woke up is because i hit the ground so hard and i got up and he was like you okay and he saw me pass out and he didn't say anything so i was like yeah i'm fine so i go back to my bedroom and my, I had, like, a little cottage I was staying in, and uh, I just went into the shower, and I said, I'm going to die. Like, <laughs> this is it. I can't move. I don't have enough energy to pick up my cell phone or even get out of the shower. And so I just laid there. And um, I'm sure I wasn't going to die, you know, but I was out. And they had to, like, knock the door and, like, come and pull me out of there Man. and um, took me straight to the hospital, like, got me B12 shots, IV. Um, there was just no limit to how far he would push me because he wanted to be the guy to kill me, not someone in the ring. Man, that is crazy. The closest I can
0: relate to that, which is not even nowhere near is uh, after the New York City Marathon. I remember just after crossing the finish line, it's almost like my legs just like new, you know? Mm -hmm. And were was like, all right, we're, we're done for about 15 minutes. And for like 15 minutes, I was just sitting there, and there was standing up was not even an option. Like, I couldn't do it if I wanted to. <laughs> your body knew this is it. Yeah, I'm just imagining it's your entire body from the, oh man, that's insane. <laughs> Something I'm really interested in is like, you know, when you make that decision to become a pre- professional fighter, and then that goal takes your like center stage in your life, um, what's it like? Because you're going into that knowing I'm about to potentially beat the shit out of someone. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm about to really like mess someone up. Like, you know, it's a super dangerous sport. Wh- you know, it's not like a soccer game where you go in and like, yeah, we might win or may lose. Um, yeah. Someone's getting really messed up in there. Yeah. What's that like mentally going in? Does it do you ever sort of like catch yourself empathizing for the other guy? And you're like, no, no, he's the enemy. Like I got to,
1: you know, in professional boxing, there's sometimes where guys have personal history before the fight and they don't like each other. You know, they talk on the phone sometime before the fight. and They, they were friends at one point in the amateurs and now they're enemies. That happens. But for the most part in prize fighting, not amateur fighting, in prize fighting, your enemies are the referee and the judges, the crowd, um, the diet you're on. You hate your coach, and he hates you if you have a good coach. Those are your enemies, and you get in, and you just don't want to lose because when you lose, your career is over. You lose two or three fights, and it's a wrap. It's not like basketball. You can have a bad season mm-hmm. and come back next year, and it's all on you. And when you lose, sometimes you're not the same person again. You don't speak the same way. You don't recall things the same way. You have to come up with clever tricks to operate the same way you used to, used to before. So you're more operating out of fear of the unknown, but not fear of the person in front of you. Um, the only time I ever felt sympathy was, I think it was like my fifth fight, and I was fighting this guy who was, had been a champion in the Marines, boxing champion. He was a little older, but he talked so much trash, and he was talking trash to me at, my, at breakfast, and it was no no big deal. And um <laughs> Yeah, so I'll tell you the real story. The real story. <laughs> so that happened. And in boxing, you, you'll get this and I'll I'll use terms that are PC, but you're not supposed to uh have relations <laughs> with women as a man. While you're training. Uh, any type of relations with anyone, you know? And um while you're training. And you're not you, you, you kinda don't wanna even want to sleep in the same bed with anybody. Why is that? There's a belief that it takes something away from you. Science says testosterone doesn't change, but there's a belief that it takes something out of you. You know, um, maybe it's just a focus thing. I don't know, but I went periods of well over a year, you know, two years, because I didn't want to lose. And my dad would have killed me, and he could notice, he, he, he could, he could sniff me out just as so, you're doing the dishes with a smile on your face. Yeah. <laughs> just starts kicking your ass <laughs> for whatever reason. I wasn't taking a chance. Like I wanted to be the best fighter I could. And I was behind the eight ball with technique. I just wasn't as good as the people I'd fight um, in terms of experience. So anyway, I'm fighting, getting ready to fight this guy. And you remember in, in uh, junior high, they told you like, something called a wet dream? So I had one the morning of the fight. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going <laughs> to lose all my energy. And uh, it's actually funny to talk about this. You may wanna, might not want to use this. So I go out there, and I have this whole strategy. I'm going to box this guy, and he's talking trash. I'm going to beat him. And I was like, but what if I get tired? So I let down, dropped my hands, and I went wild on him, wild. And um, I remember he came, He started to go down. It's a grown guy. He was actually boxing me really well. And he went down. He was starting to go down, and he looked at me with so much terror as if to say, don't do it. And I did it. <laughs> but that was the only time I felt bad because I didn't have to throw that punch. And after that, you start to think, you know what? I want to do just enough to end this um, and walk out with this guy safe. And... Apparently, the most humane way to do it is a quick knockout, not to beat over beat over somebody's head for six to eight rounds mm. and just slap them over and over. Just get it over with. Um, believe it or not, you know, but it is something you think about, especially when you start to feel the effects of head injury yourself. You don't really want to do that to other people, especially your your sparring partners. Mm-hmm. Um, depends on what type of person you are, though, probably. So. Are there, it's, it's so complex emotionally, like you were just saying, I
0: mean, even just the split seconds, like you catch an emotion on someone's face and you have a decision yeah. to make right there. Split second. Are there things that you've learned in, uh, that you learned in your training that you've now been able to translate to,
1: you know, business, uh, or, or, you know, even being an athlete? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, the number one thing is what's the most important thing at this moment. Uh, like in that moment, like the reason I hit that guy is I didn't want to lose. What if I lose? You know, what if he gets back up? And sometimes that's a fear of your own ill abilities. Like you should be like, yo, if he gets back up, I'm good. I can do it again. But you don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, fear of the unknown affecting your def- decision making, fear-based decision making, um, I develop my confidence to kind of stray away from that. I think in boxing, um, confusing the opponent. If you figure out which, what the opponent is, um, sometimes your opponent is per culture or whatever, um, but not letting the opponent win, confusing the opponent, staying ahead of the opponent, understanding the opponent's strategy before you decide what yours is are things that I got from boxing. I never thought about business that way. And, um, I've never thought about uh, confusing your opponent in terms of business. Is there, what's a way that you've been able to do that? Yeah, I think, um, playing dumb. So in boxing, that is don't show them anything. So you know what they're going to do. They're not going to show you what they can do or what they plan to do. Um, if they're afraid of you, right, so in business, the sharper you are, the more lingo you use um, the more you tell someone they already get something they're about to tell you, the more they want to be clever with you if they are a tr- true opponent, you know if if they're if they're c- trying to get you, so you just play dumb, You're like, oh really, oh, sure enough, oh no, right, until you know what their strategy is, and their clever meter or their 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 urge to be clever to trick you to to be sneaky goes down because their guard is down. And I'm like, I got this. Let me see if I'll go for this. Let me see if I'll go for that. And then, because you don't have to agree to anything until you agree to it. You don't have to sign the paper. Once I understand where they're coming from, then I don't have to use big terms. I just have to make sure that I negotiate the right deal and say no. Um, And it's good to know those things going into a business deal. And sometimes you act super clever. And the idea is you can never be the smartest man in the room. You never know. So I'd rather be the dumbest guy in the room to understand the strategy. The last piece is once you understand someone's strategy, bringing it back to boxing, then you encourage the strategy. Oh, that's what you want to do? Come on, do it.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: don't do that again. If there's this poem, uh, The Spider and the Fly. You should read it. But the idea is, the, would you step into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. Um, the spider actually tricks the fly to say, hey, it's safe to come in here. So you have to encourage people that, to believe that their strategy is the right one and a little bit of success, maybe winning an element on a negoci- a little piece of, on, on a negotiation before you sign the doc, winning another little piece, right? Keep playing that strategy, and then you trap them right at the end. In um, boxing, it's the same thing. Let them hit you with a jab. Let them hit you with a little body shot. Let them drop their hands a little bit. Let them win around, doing something that you're going to use against them. And then when they're a little bit tired, when they're a little overly confident, get the job done, you know? Mm-hmm. So, building confidence.
0: Yeah, now in unique challenge, and you've had <laughs> the pleasure of having to deal with this in boxing and in business is, you know, people hear your name and immediately, it's like your, your dad is legendary. All of a sudden, with like right out the gate, there is this expectation on you. There's this, you know, there are these big shoes to fill. and. <laughs> I wanted to to ask you about what what that feels like, kind of stepping into an arena already with a
1: massive amount of expectation on you. Yeah, um, had I not had a great uh, relationship with my father, or a very healthy relationship with my dad, I think it would have been, I would have made decisions based on trying to me living up to his, you know, filling in his shoes, that are the wrong. You know, he didn't have anyone to live up to. Um, Most great athletes weren't trying to be their father. Most of them weren't. Um, But maybe they didn't want to let their dad down. And I had that. I didn't want my dad to be uh, disappointed in me, and I wanted him to be proud of me. Mm -hmm. So I think that I was more concerned with, is my dad proud of me, than what do people think if I fail? Always more concerned with that. That's what drove me. Had that not existed, I probably would have had a chip on my shoulder trying to show that I'm as good if not better than my dad. But that wasn't a concern. And him setting the standard for what he would be proud of is probably what kept me away from that. And I'll give him credit for that. Um, it was more about following your dreams, standing for something, and um, being a moral person, a decent human being, as he would say.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really cool. I like how he sort of turned that expectation into a positive. You know, like he's excited to see what you can, how you can further, you know, even what he's done. Um, and, and maybe in the business arena. I mean, like now with Group Fitness, right? Like you're taking the the business and the sort of the family business, so to speak, in a into a new arena on your own, which is uh, which is exciting. Um, so you said you started your business career actually under uh, your dad's company, mm-hmm. right, uh, George Foreman Enterprises. Yeah. And you were a and business that. manager, and, and even before that,
1: yeah.
0: How was that even just in a work environment where you're sort of stepping
1: in and you're like the boss's kid? Yeah, uh, that 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 wasn't fun. Um, I actually, you know, my first business was as a kid. I started a lawn mowing business, thir- thirteen. Um, but my dad gave me my first opportunity to 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 do things on a larger scale, for sure. And um, you know, it, it was. I think you want to show people how smart you are, but at the re- and what I learned is, regardless of how smart I was, I didn't have their experience. And in business, many times, experience is the genius. Um, so, um, it, it was, it was, you know, at the end of the day, I had all the leverage I managed my dad, you know? So, um, I more so leaned heavily on, um, great accountants, uh, great lawyers, AB testing, <laughs> um, if you will, that, that my version of it and, um, and, uh, making friends in the industry who could, who could tell me what was customary, what was not customary, um, and weighing everything they said against each other. And making sure my dad always got what he wanted. And I didn't make deals that were set up for failure because I'm the one that was actually going to have to make him get up and make good on the deal. Like, hey, now we have to give those five days of commitment um, to shoot a commercial. And if he didn't want to do something like that, I would make sure he wouldn't sign a deal for that. So I think it was me knowing my dad and me being so afraid to make a mistake that he would be upset with me about. That made me just double down on research and making friends in the industry. And I also... um, I took law classes without being able to get a degree. I would go and sit in law classes um, at Texas Southern University. Oh, really? I knew, I knew the dean. and Just um, like auditing the class? Yep. Yeah, I bought the books and everything. So I, I prepared. Having said that, I made mistakes, you know? Um, but, yeah, it was kind of daunting, man. Everybody wanted to call me by my nickname, you know? But, uh Yeah. How did that nickname come about? You mentioned it earlier. My dad's nickname is Monkey. My aunt said we can't have two monkeys in the same household because she, she grew up calling him Monkey, so she nicknamed me Monk. But also, I mean, and then
0: maybe this is just the internet being the internet. I've, I've read that it's, you know, you, you have a more sort of calm demeanor than, you know, let's say your brothers or, or even your dad. Uh, would you say that's accurate?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I do. But I think my thing is balancing out the energy in the room. And my dad was this over-the-top, you know, personality. He preached. He was a preacher four times a week. You know, like that's really what I knew him as, even beyond a boxer. And my brothers and sisters are more extroverted than I was, so I just became an introvert. Um, but I'll be extroverted if I need to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you've got a, I uh, I mean, you're not obviously you're not fighting
0: right now, but you, your record is 16 and 0 mm-hmm. when you're somewhere around, like, you know, I don't, like literally anywhere from five and 0 to 14 and 0, and you've got that fight coming up. I mean, there's that, there's so much pressure to keep that, that, 0, <laughs> yeah. right. How do you keep your mind in check and not drive yourself absolutely crazy?
1: It's hard. It's hard. I think there's few sports. I heard triathletes or triathletes are similar, but I think there's few sports that make you as much of a narcissist as not boxing, but prize fighting, because when you go to fight, if you pull out the last second, or something happens, or you get injured because you're playing baseball with your friends in the weekend or whatever, your trainer, your cornerman, your whole team doesn't get a paycheck. Mm-hmm. Not just you. you. You you get you know sixty sixty seventy eighty percent of the money typically or more. Um, every time you fight, they're, they're banking on 10 to 15%. Um, they got to eat, you know, so there's a lot of pressure. Um, so it does drive you crazy, but I would say normalcy and having friends who are not part of your camp, who not, who are not eating off you, if you will, or needing to eat off you, which is fine. Everybody has to make 11, um, and spending your time with them as opposed to the people who need you for them to pay their bills mm-hmm. is important. Um, family, who's going to tell you when you're being an idiot, um, irregardless of your success, is important. Um, I, I would say, outside of that, and tragedy, people having tragedy, which I would never wish on anyone, including myself, it's the only way to uh, maintain some degree of normalcy how in your life as a prize fighter. How does tragedy help you maintain normalcy? I mean, tragedy puts it all in perspective because it's, you know, everything you thought was, you took, you know, for granted, swept from under you. And, um, and then you realize what's important, and it's not the money, it's not the fame. It's things that you just didn't expect that you needed for happiness, um, like dignity um, or your, your friend, you know? Mm-hmm. So.
0: so I want to zoom back out. Uh, we sort of jump all over the place sure. uh, and talk. go back to EBF, Everybody Fights. You know, like we said at the beginning, boxing fitness, group fitness has never been more popular than, than it is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, you go to these classes and, you know, boxing is a technical sport. Yeah. Like, you know, really, you could argue any exercise is a technical movement because uh, you could hurt yourself doing almost anything. But boxing especially, you know, it's a, punching is a multi-joint movement, high impact. And, you know, a lot of the classes out there just flat out don't instruct properly. You know, it's mm-hmm. like throw a left, throw a right, but people aren't really learning how to do that the right way. And it's very easy to like injure a wrist or a shoulder. When it comes to everybody fights, how, how are, you see, are you seeing people coming in with injuries from other classes, um, from other studios? And I, I'm asking this. I almost know the answer, but I, I just want you to show it off because it's so awesome. Like, you guys have such good instruction at your gym. Um, you. I think every boxing coach is a former or current fighter, mm-hmm. uh, like you were saying. I'm, I'm interested. Do you hear stories of people coming in and just, you know, saying your instruction is just so much better than what's out there? Or what, what's your take
1: on the group boxing scene right now? Yeah, I mean, we get a lot of, um, I mean, we get criticized just, we get criticized by diehards, people who've been with us for two years. So when I say we get criticized, it's a special type of criticism. Don't change what you've done, you know, and I appreciate that. They keep us honest. Um, but, yeah, we get a lot of compliments about teaching the sport properly and and furthermore wanting to teach the sport proper, properly. We're not always going to nail it, everything. And um, I think um, it's important. I think in business there's – the bottom line, and there's the bottom of your heart, right and people think you can't balance those, and I think you can, but you have to start with the bottom of your heart first, and you know for us at everybody fights, the bottom of our heart is we want everyone to walk in and master a craft, and guess what Also feel a sense of accomplishment in learning something a craft, not losing weight, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? You can lose weight by just like walking and not eating like there's many ways to lose weight. And then we figure out how to make money later, you know, and that's the, the attitude we take. And so bottom of my heart, how are we going to teach? Well, if you want to teach people, you have to find people who love to teach and who do it for free, mm-hmm. for free. And those are the type of people we look for. And you don't know. You don't really need to know how to teach a beginner, how to engage 50, 60 people in a class. I'll teach you that. But if you're teaching boxing for free when I meet you, you're my person. The highest paid personal trainers in the world and I'm sure you might be able to prove me wrong, but the highest ones I know, highest paid, are boxing trainers. You know, guys like Freddie Roach have three or four trainers. It's funny you say that. Niners. Actually, the, the highest paid personal trainers I know are boxing trainers. <laughs> <laughs> they are. Yeah. You know, some of these guys are making 4 or $5 million a year for 10 years. Um, I don't know any personal trainers that make that type of money. Uh, personal trainers, that they actually still personal train. But those guys, I, I was visiting with Freddie Roach, you know, a few months ago, and all he's talking about is his amateur boxing team, which he subsidizes. He pays for them. You know, he doesn't make any money. Hmm. These are the type of people we look to employ. So um, we have a training certification. It's long; takes eight to twelve weeks. Then we train you. It's a, it's a very intense process. I invest way more than I would like to to teach them how to teach a squat, a lunge, and everything. Mm-hmm. But at the end. They take the approach that I'm not satisfied until everybody's learning this properly. And what they have to do is actually back up a little bit and say, you're not going to get everything I have to tell them. You're not going to get it all done today. But if you make sure you meet them, get to know their name, teach them enough Mm -hmm. to fill the cup for that day and get them to come back four or five times a week at an average cost of 10 to $12 per visit as opposed to $27 per visit, mm-hmm. they will learn the craft over time naturally. There are studios in
0: New York City that charge $45 for a class right now. Yeah. 50, actually, no, do you know what? I heard of one for 50 the other day, I'm not gonna say what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I Did, just, just so you, you guys have, business. I mean, you're still in growth mode. Like the last time we talked, um, when i interviewed you for that story in men's health you were just saying yeah we're expanding to i mean you had one i think san fran uh, mm-hmm. somewhere else somewhere else in california you had i think at least four that you just listed off mm-hmm. when you you start something unique like everybody fights so you started in boston right um and you've got this sort of unique dna as a studio like you know what the sort of the personality of the workout is so to speak and then you decide to start expanding and growing and now you've got locations in new york and on the west coast and, and all over the place kentucky what what can you do to make sure that none of that gets lost in translation? Because I know it's, I've seen it happen to um, at least one studio that started in New York and then went all over the country. And by the end of it, the founder was actually extremely upset because going to that studio in a different state felt nothing like what the original class was intended to be. And that was really the, the draw of the
1: whole thing in the first place. Mm. How do you keep a culture consistent across locations? I, I don't have the magic answer to that. What I can tell you is that I'm drawing on personnel that already exists. There's like 10,000 boxing gyms or something, some crazy number like that. They're already out there. And guess what? Those trainers are the ones I need. I don't need the trainers at Lifetime or Equinox. I love those people like that. Don't get me wrong. They make a lot of money too. Um, But my trainers are in sweaty boxing gyms, in dingy places, not making a dime, right? And they can, you know, I have trainers that have gone from, you know, in and out of jail to making – 80, 90, $100,000 a year, 23 years old. You know, that's my guy. Hmm. And he already exists. Um, I currently have, and I'm not boasting, but just so you know, this is, this is our plan. I have 500 certified EBF trainers across the nation right now, some in Dubai, some in the UK, and I'm not even promoting that.
0: Oh, wow. So is that a, like a certification, sort of, um, I guess, certification that you set up that trainers yeah. can become an EBF certified
1: trainer? Yeah, and i barely make a dime off it mm-hmm. but when i go to philly like there's trainers there already when i go to dc mm-hmm. i have people there, and they, they don't really have to be training in the gym or anything they're just they can have their own practice they just get your sort of stamp like they're in that network yeah because they, they never had a they never had a credential mm-hmm. to show that they have experience mm-hmm. all i did is say prove to me that you can do stuff you already know yeah. how to do and that, i'll give you a stamp. that's so smart i mean it's essentially you're getting into licensing now right like you've got
0: like you're giving them a, a stamp to be proud of or a label I find that so interesting because I talk to a lot of personal trainers who have the same problem, which is, you know, let's say they've now established themselves, right? And their schedule's full. They have tons of clients and their rate's pretty good, but they can't put more time in their day. They can't put more hours in their day, so they feel like they've hit a ceiling. Um, I can only be in one place at one time so many times a day that's that's a huge challenge like and you see a lot of people going for you know the tech route and trying to create an app and that almost never works yeah. unless you're like kayla latinas <laughs> <laughs> trying to change consumer behavior yeah work. what i'm curious if you've see, i mean you work with some amazing trainers yeah. and uh, even just the ebf trainers um shout out to dennis Lozada, one of my sure. favorite trainers in new york city <laughs> um and what are some things you're seeing in the space ways that trainers are being innovative uh
1: with to make more money yeah and i think the in the in the in, Comment on on your last question is we have a leadership model, not a business model. At the really the heart, if I'm being honest, what we're doing. If that fails, that my whole business fails. Leadership model. So what I tell trainers like Dennis, um, who who I look up to, he's in many ways a role model for me. But can you generate better talent than yourself by being a leader, impressing them with your ability, um, but also being impressing them with your listening ability and having patience. To, to figure out what's the right thing to say to that person to make them better than you are. Mm-hmm. Can you do that? And I think if you can do that, you're gonna be in this business for a long, long time because I think the, the fitness industry is not even at its peak, it's not even close to plateauing. We're still on the way up and it's content creators and people who can develop great talent who are gonna be at the top of the game and the platforms for licensing, the platforms for delivering content for those people will be there when it's time um so i think that's that that to me that's that's how these people stay in the game um but you you don't want to be 48 years old um teaching group fitness classes 17 times a week you're going to be tired develop your craft to coach mm-hmm. and teach and mentor now i think that's what i would tell everybody else because the last thing is i think what's going to happen is i think one day there's not going to be welfare people are just going to get a check because it just makes more sense it's easier and i don't think everybody's going to really have to work I don't have an opinion on that. I just think that's what's going to happen. And the people who are going to have jobs are going to be people who can program computers and who are highly technical and trainers, people who know how to work one-on-one and create a great peer-to-peer, person-to-person physical experience. And the people who are at the top of the industry right now are going to be true celebrities at that point, true leaders. Um, So they should just keep doubling down on that craft, um, knowing that them and the tech people are going to be... Those are going to be the jobs, you know? Yeah, so. you can see those two industries just on a collision course. Yeah, I don't know what else is going to be
0: around. Yeah, no, it's definitely happening already. And you mentioned um, the, you know, you think the fitness industry is still on the rise, definitely hasn't yeah. plateaued. Um, I believe with you. I, I mean, I believe you, but I'm, I'm curious about what you see. Like, what do you see coming? Uh, just the way, that, you know, um, Why you are, sort of, yeah, yeah, you see the trend, you're plugged in, you're yeah. in a couple major cities in the U.S. Um, I'll
1: tell you, you know, th- three things. I was at Ursa the other day. And Woodway has the best treadmill, Cybex Lifetime Fitness has the best like open gym equipment. You know, everybody makes the same kettlebell. Not much has changed. Right. But it's still getting bigger. The booth fees are bigger. So that means you actually don't have to be great to make money in the industry. So still growing. So I know that. Number one. Number two, um, I, I, I see the trends to be content um is going to be a huge trend but delivering it in a pure person-to-person uh way if that makes any sense i think is going to be huge so more like personalized sort of guidance like training nutrition that kind yeah. of thing yeah I, I think that and i think you know give me give me like peloton the to me the peloton uh, the reason peloton is so great right now is because they make a really good bike and it looks like a piece of furniture and you have content to go along with it right and it motivates you to hop on the bike but i don't think peloton is peloton without the bike it's a, really good bike so you have to give people a place or a thing to experience the content that could be a gym by the way um i see that being a trend and um the last trend i think in uh, transformation Mm -hmm. so two things transformation and consolidation i'll talk about consolidation first so you had old strongman gyms arnold schwarzenegger Then you had luxury clubs people belong to, $100, $200 a month, $300, $500. Then you had the guys in the middle, Gold's getting killed during the ushering of Planet Fitness, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not willing to pay $100. I can pay $10 a month for that and get everything I need. Okay. Um, I see the same thing happening in group fitness, which is why I think we're even in business. We're 70% EFT membership, like recurring revenue. We're Mm -hmm. a subscription business because we provide a value to the people who are naturally paying 400 bucks for group fitness. I think that industry is gonna collapse and only the, the top uh, fitness providers, Barry, SoulCycle, FlyWare are gonna survive. Hopefully we survive because we provide a membership and a value. And I think, I, see you're gonna, I think you're gonna see that in the middle markets where no one's gonna wanna pay $80 for Orange Theory and mm-hmm. Title because they didn't wanna pay it in the first place. They just had no choice. They wanna pay $10 a month. And I think someone who has a model a big boutique model to, to, to capture that is going to win. The last thing is transformation. So people want to rock climb, but they don't want to fall off the cliff. People want to box, say they box. They even want to get in the ring and put on headgear and a mouthpiece. They don't want to get knocked out, lose teeth, and have a concussion. That's what we provide. You can get in concussion if you really want to, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's a small piece of our business for the early adopters, but we're incubating it. Because... Who, who, whoever said, I don't want to be transformed. <laughs> the, I don't the, wa- the George Foreman <laughs> concussion experience. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's serious. And I got them, but it made me better. And whoever said, I don't just like to the
0: record. You're not, you don't have a class where you give people
1: concussions on. Purpose. Yeah. I'm, I'm, kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just saying like, if you're really a knucklehead, you can figure out a way to get one. Um, but whoever said they didn't like sense of accomplishment. Um, whoever said they didn't like a badge of courage or honor or a brand that says something that means something about. Who they are. That says something about who. No one ever said they didn't like that, but it needs to be delivered to them in an approachable way. Brooklyn Bold, Boulders, etc., providing providing an experience. I think people will be with you for a year to two years, and then they'll move on. They want something different. Mm-hmm. And I think that's coming next. Experiential fitness, the Barry's Boot Camp, the Rumble, the soul is a little bit different. They're special. But these others, I think right now they're at their peak, mm-hmm. and they'll be around for a long time make a lot of money. But I think the experiential fitness, the, the smoke machines and all that, I think it's pretty much over in the next two years um, in terms of being the trend. Transforma- transformation is next and the way people, I don't know, I don't know. I, I'll be, I'm very interested to see how people deliver that. Yeah, well, no, you're, I think you're spot on. I mean, some, like
0: for example, you have trainers who were fighters and now they're, they're trainers, right? Um, they came from that industry and you know a very popular studio it's one of the ones you named something they started doing because they had a reputation for amazing instructors was actually sourcing people from like broadway and uh, performing yeah. arts and then having them go through you know training certifications and in some cases just their own certifications for their own franchise yeah. not necessarily like you know um a cscs or ace or, or NASM or anything like that um and you know it definitely helped create this sort of cult culture uh, for these group workout classes like people going to even like two soul cycle classes a day because it's a social thing you know it's yeah. endorphins but it's also a social thing and i think that you know it's done wonders for the fitness industry in terms of getting people out of the woodwork and even though we talk about the smoke and the mirrors of, of certain classes literally smoke and mirrors not like tricks <laughs> um it's i think it's on the while on the one hand, it can be actually quite dangerous because you have people getting in there, it's dark, their trainers are yelling deadlift and they've never done a deadlift they, yeah, the end yeah. of this, it's a really you know awesome opportunity to totally hurt yourself yeah. um, but it gets people excited about fitness and <laughs> I, I agree I do think that's going to slowly drop off. but I think it's good that people have gotten sort of excited more excited about fitness over the years, um, especially recently, and where I see the trend going, which is really part of what you're saying because we 're talking about customization, is more I mean, this is on a totally above top shelf level, but, you know, like Performix, just opening up, um, where it's very focused and you're Mm -hmm. going in there with a trainer and you're on a mission, Um, but all the way to the sort of uh, lower budget end of the spectrum where you've got more people now, um, you know, you couldn't, uh, for years, you couldn't hire a personal trainer for a group of like three people. Like that wasn't really a model. Now that's a model, like small group fitness. So Mm -hmm. I think people are getting sort of hooked by the groups and now they're realizing, I need a more tailored approach because maybe they feel like they hit a ceiling with an instructor or with like a modality or, or one brand of class. So it's uh, I agree. I mean, customization is everything. I love one of my favorite stories is when I was at Men's Health in UK, I remember finding a study and it was this woman who just couldn't lose weight. Everything she tried, like, you know, um, diet, fitness, and she went to a doctor, she had her bloods done and he found out it was tomatoes somehow her body reacted with tomatoes in a way that just didn't, it just inhibited whatever weight loss process needed Mm -hmm. to happen, um, internally. And when she cut tomatoes out, she lost weight like crazy. So customization can be amazing. Um, it's, it's a question of how we get there. Like, how do you scale
1: that? You know, it's hard to do many things well, right? But the reality is the consumer is so smart. Now they have access to so much information and they view themselves as, I don't just work in an office. I do 30 different things that, I think now is a time where people are looking for businesses that that can that can that can support that. I'm multifaceted. I'm not my job title. I'm not my degree. I am a rock climber. I am a boxer. I ride horses. I hike. You know. Um, I write. Um, I play in a band on the weekend. Um, And businesses that can support that, I think, are are going to win. Which is why we've committed to being like multidisciplined. I don't want to write 16 new workouts a week, but I also don't want to pivot in two years so. and what's cool that what you guys do which is, is unique as well um very few gyms do this
0: is you offer open gym so yeah. people can come do a one-on-one boxing class or even do that a couple times a week but then the gyms open you know at certain times for them to come in and just you know lift on their own and sort of apply it like what they learned with that trainer
1: yeah and I, by the way i got that because i had kids i trained by the way my dad said if, if i'm going to train you all these other demands you also have to train people he had closed our boxing gym the boxing gym component because of unauthorized sparring Mm. and so he said you're the only trainer in there and i didn't know anything so i was like all right but i built up a boxing team and we had i had amateur fighters and all that long story short there were kids who would hang around and adults and they didn't even want to box they just acted like that because they needed a place to be Mm. and they'd like oh yeah coach and they go in the corner and play on their phone or whatever we all need that. And so sometimes people like I have 100 people a day who go through our first gym in, in Boston and they're just not going to do anything but play on their computer, take some photos, walk in the treadmill for a second, grab a juice and bounce. But they needed a place to be as opposed to being home and depressed or the youngsters, you know, having a knife in their hand. Right. People need a place to be, man. And it's not just about the workout. One one more thing I want to ask you,
0: because I know um, this is I've already probably taken up Way more of your time than you it's want, okay. dude. Yeah. Um, this no, but seriously, funny. man, thank you. Um, this is fun places to be social media. Everyone is on freaking Instagram all the time, mm-hmm. and I've, I, I've observed it. Like, <laughs> it's, it's different when you're not in the class just to sort of watch, but I've seen like you know, wait, waiting for a class at EBF, like people will end the class, and like nine out of ten of them are like getting ready for like their post workout selfie, yeah, or, like, that yeah. Group yeah. photo. <laughs> um, and you know, like you guys. Aren't idiots? Like you've clearly designed parts of the studio in a way that like it is very, very Instagramable, right? <laughs> like it's the, the, yeah. the signs, the lighting—it's awesome. Um, I always feel like I have like an extra set of abs when I'm in like the <laughs> training room. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. I don't want to leave. Um, yeah. How does that sort of interact with your business? Just how does um, social media, you know, enhance things for you, or does it inhibit things in any way? Um, does it make certain things more difficult? Aside from the obvious, like you know you have a brand and you promote it on social to get more, more awareness.
1: Uh, remind me to tell you this quote from my dad about the speed bag. We got lucky. Like, looking back in hindsight, I can tell you that, like, oh, yeah, our parts of our gym are Instagrammable. Um, the lighting, I can tell you all that, but the truth is how I arrived there, the first gym, um, there was a lady named Maho. Um, I'm forgetting her last name. She actually, um, anyway, we, we hired Maho. Um, she had a company called Zen Associates, and I said, I have this great concept for a gym I think is a great concept. But I want women to feel comfortable, so why shouldn't a woman design it? So I came to Maho. My home. Maho's my 70 plus, and I explained it to her. She'd never designed a gym. She a few Japanese restaurants, but primarily residential. Um, she had just designed the home for the owner of the Red Sox at that point. Oh wow. And I was like, blah blah da 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 da. My dad is George Foreman. Like I was throwing <laughs> out everything, and she said, No, no. And I was like, what? She's like, no. I'm like, why did she even let me take the meeting? And she's like, I'm too old. I don't understand. And da, 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 da. Long story short, she, by the time I walked out of there, she was one of our first investors. She paid us just about what we had to pay her to do the project. But um, invested. Long story short, I told her, um, I was like, I need you because, you know, boxing is from the street. But the goal is to get to the Rolls Royce, right? And I need a gym that represents both gritty and luxury. Mm-hmm. And um, I showed her a private jet and I showed her a picture of my father. And I said, what do these two have in common? I said, they both come from the street. He didn't get the jet. He wouldn't have had the jet if he didn't get thrown in jail and wasn't a mugger and lived in the streets. Not for mugging, but he's from the street that Mm -hmm. gave him something. And so um, I said, I need someone to pull this all together. And I want women to feel comfortable. So if you notice in our gym, there's very few circles, all straight edges, the lights above the ring. And I told her, I said, when I fight, I get nervous. Because these big, bright lights and then the gym, there's like sterile lighting, mm-hmm. big, bright lights above the ring. And you're starting to see it at more gyms now. Um, and I said, I don't want my people to get scared being on the spot. So I want I had this idea of rigging and it was going to look just like you're in a boxing ring. She found these LED lights to go around. But I said, people need to be inspired here. And I threw a lot at her. And this is exactly the truth. And I said, you remember the old libraries from like the Roman era and all that? People wanted to hang out in these places just to hang out even though they didn't want to read. And now a lot of libraries look like prisons. So I said, "I that's what I want from from my place. You want to be there, and you might work out. And that's where we got these. I have like a 30-foot mural in our first gym, and I have all this, this inspirational. That's just to get people in there. This is before Instagram was a thing. I didn't even, know, I didn't even have an Instagram account. Hmm. But people started taking pictures in front of all this stuff. So we were like, oh, they need something to mark that they were there, and it doesn't count unless you took a picture. That's called sense of accomplishment. It's not just about, Hey, look at me. And so there's that element of it too, right? Instagram feeds that. So we said, look, let's, let's repeat this and play into it. And that's why we started doing it. But the original thing was we needed an inspirational space. Now, boxing itself is special because my dad, my dad, I get this from my dad. He said, the speed bag, you've seen the speed bag. It's no good. It's no good unless someone's watching you. (laughs) And so boxing, especially taking on something that's so hard to learn, if no one knows you're doing it, who cares, you know, unless you're going to fight and make some money, feed your family. Um, And so now we realize we got to give people something to mark that they are a boxer, they are part of a gym. So that goes into how we, you know, our apparel, like we think about that a lot and how we can make sure someone has some type of badge or something that says, I'm a fighter. That's important.
0: And that, that gives me a great um, segue to what I w- want to ask you next. You talk about the the speed bag, and you know it's only good if someone's watching you. Yeah. When you're whether you're training for a fight or you are just you know you have a business goal and you're working really hard towards that, there's a lot of what you could call the lonely work, right? Like the work when like no one's watching. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember Under Armour years ago had an amazing ad with Michael Phelps, who was like swimming in a pool and like none of the lights were on except a spotlight on his lane. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this idea that you know when what people see in the olympics and what people see in a boxing ring or in a in a business scenario maybe a presentation that's the culmination of a lot right a lot of work that no one no one saw whether it's you training for a fight or you know eventually ramping up ebf how do you sort of stay motivated when no one's watching
1: yeah um i'd say i stay motivated because I, I, there's a part of my motivation I have no idea why I get up and I'm like from 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. every morning I'm just sitting there thinking in my bed thinking you wake up at 3 a.m. every morning and I can't go to sleep I don't know why you know but I'm thinking of ideas I'm running through stuff like and I'm not even nervous you know but I'm thinking about my business and so I don't know what that comes from so there's that right but what keeps me going you know when I'm tired and I'm like I can make more money doing other stuff is um, like I had this young lady who emailed us and was like hey she told us her story about she got mugged no let me go back she had she told us I'd been mugged before and she was like a victim like somebody beat her up you know and there may have been more to it she came to everybody fights lightning struck again another guy mugged her she threw a left hook just like responded just naturally like her response was door punch like I left hook and she didn't beat the guy up but he left her alone and he ran away wow and That is important. That is important. And I had a guy today, I actually um, had a, we have these tests. Like when you reach a certain level of coming to classes, we have like an amateur test, which testes tests your skills with a trainer, the pro test, you move up kind of like karate. And this young gentleman who was great, didn't feel that he was was great. And he disappeared. I showed up this morning, he wasn't there for the test. So I reached out to him and I said, what's up, man? And he was just like, I didn't feel like I was advancing. This whole long story. And it was sincere. So I said, look, your membership's free. I'll spy with you every Wednesday when I come in town, but don't give up your craft. And uh, I'm waiting for his response right now. That is, I would never tell anybody else that because my investors would shoot me. <laughs> well, I'm now, now I'm telling it, I don't care. But my point <laughs> is like, that keeps me up at night, man. Those are the things that keep me going. Um, and also, I'd say the last thing, the thing I'm most committed to this business now for is my the 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 people who who work with me. Um they come into this and they're in their 30s and they're like, "Yo, what am I going to do in my 40s and my 50s? I got to open more gyms. I got to get into the content game. I got to make sure they can be managers. I got to make sure that they have pensions." Well, you also have to make sure that you're going to be,
0: you know, as as strong and healthy and fit as you are now then because, you know, the more your business expands, the more visible you become. And so you can't deteriorate as your business grows just yeah, to save the true. business. So, I mean, how do you sort of stay on top of your own workouts? Like you're, you're busy. <laughs> I mean, as, even just as I was setting up the podcast equipment, you, were, you had a conference
1: call and then you were firing <laughs> off emails, like. <laughs> it's, I, I struggle with it just like everybody else. It's, I think it's the only reason I stay, I have a good understanding of what people need because I struggle. Um, so that's number one. Number two, my dad. He was my boxing coach. First mentor um, in terms of men, my mom too, but my dad, he every day, what what'd you eat? I'm vegan. What are you doing? Oh, well, I have a great soup. Okay, do you eat peppers? I'm grilling. This is these are our conversations. <laughs> the other day he asked me how much do I weigh, and I'm a little heavier than I normally am. I'm in I'm like 260 something, and he goes good, and I said what? And he goes I'm 249. <laughs> and so my point is everybody's got to have a coach. Everybody has to have a one-on-one relationship with someone who's going to hold them accountable. And thank God my boxing trainer still speaks to me. So um, that's how I do it, to be honest. If it wasn't for him, I'd, I'd be somewhere behind a computer, 300 pounds. What's the weirdest or most interesting thing you've ever made in a George Foreman grill? Oh, um, honestly, just heating up uh, old food, wrap it in tinfoil, <laughs> and um, put it in a grill. <laughs> like anything, yeah, yeah anything. Um, that would be about it, yeah. Nice.
0: Dude, thank you so much for taking the time. This has Thanks, been awesome. Man. Thanks, man. I appreciate chatting with you. All right. See you at the gym. Thanks, dude. Hey, guys. Dean here again. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe. You can find Gamma Project on all major podcast platforms. And if you're really feeling supportive, leave a rating or a review. Those really help. Stay tuned for the next episode. And in the meantime, head over to gammaprojectpodcast.com for more information on the show, its guests, and some other cool stuff you might find interesting. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Gamma Project Podcast, no spaces. That's it for now. Until next time. Once again, this episode is brought to you by iFit Nourish. iFit Nourish delivers personalized nutrition to your door with protein, vitamins, and minerals to support your individual needs. When you go to iFitNourish.com, you'll fill out a quick questionnaire with basic information like gender, age, height, and weight before providing insights into your lifestyle, like your typical energy levels, daily sun exposure, whether or not you're a smoker, how often you exercise, the kinds of exercise you do, and of course, your goals. In the dietary section, you'll input how much fruit and vegetables you get through your diet, any dietary preferences, like if you prefer vegan or a vegetarian mix, food allergies, how often you plan to drink the shakes, and whether you intend to use them as a meal replacement or as supplements. You can also pick your favorite flavor, Whether you're looking to build muscle, lose weight, increase your endurance, improve energy levels or athletic performance, or even just maintain, Nourish was created to arm you with the nutrition that you need to go after your goals while also providing a solid daily nutritional foundation. When I went onto ifitnourish.com to try it out for myself, the questionnaire took less than a minute to fill out, and when the system presented its recommendation, I was able to look through the supplement facts before completing my order. Your first personalized order is free, just pay $5 shipping, and you'll get a free shaker bottle. I like to eat vegan as often as I can, so I got two weeks' worth of a daily protein shake made from plant-based ingredients. And when you're ready to re-up, use discount code just for you. that's J-U-S-T, number four, letter U, at checkout to take another 20% off any personalized iFitNourish mix. Try it for yourself today at iFitNourish.com. That's i F I T N O U R I S H.com.